Hi, I'm Paul Jay, and welcome to the analysis.news. Uh, please don't forget the donate button, subscribe if you're on YouTube, and most important, uh, come to the website and sign up on the email list. Um, in a few seconds, I'm going to be back with a student, Reed Hoffman, who asked to interview me, and uh, that's what we're going to do. So Reed Hoffman wrote me asking for an interview. Here's the first para of what he wrote me. As a 25-year-old from California, I just returned to school this semester after spending the last eight years of my life working in the restaurant industry, specializing in farm-to-table organics. Having spent eight years of my life working 60-plus hour weeks and having nothing to show for it, and seeing myself surrounded with people in similar situations, I began to seriously investigate our political and economic systems to understand why exactly this was. So, as I said, Reed asked me for an interview for school, and I suggested we do it on video, and so I'm going to turn things over to Reed now. So, thanks, Reed, and over to you. Thank you for having me. I, I really appreciate it. I'm looking forward to this, and I have been for quite a while. So the first question I wanted to ask you is just, you know, what is your background, and how did you get involved in this, you know, the media, and specifically the um, sort of, how should I say, adversarial national security reporting, you know, certainly adversarial to a lot of our governments in the West and even outside of the West, you know, their narratives and all of that. How did you get interested in this? How did you become involved? Um, well, of course, it's a long story. I'm getting old. Um, the uh, I wouldn't call it adversarial in the sense that that's not my objective to be adversarial. Um, you know, I, I think in, what the, in the note you wrote me, you talked about being involved in anti-imperialist media. Yes. And that's, that's not my objective either. Um, okay. You know, as in, you know, personally, of course, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm opposed to imperialism. Mm -hmm. And anyone that isn't opposed to imperialism, I, so, I suppose, is making money from imperialism. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Which is actually a lot of people, far more than you would think, because if you're living in the United States... Um, large sections of the population uh, profit from America being the leading imperialist power, not just the people that own uh, you know, shares in the military-industrial complex and, and so on, uh, but one of the things the United States elites are able to do is share some of the plunder of the world with certain sections even of the working class, uh, especially uh, it, workers that are working in the military industrial complex and, and some other places that are, that are you know, relatively higher paid. Uh, although that's, even some of those sections are less higher paid than they were just a few years ago uh, as a result of uh, global wage competition, uh, which is you know, deliberately created. Um, but but I, my starting point is not how to fight imperialism. My starting point is to seek as much uh, truth, and I know that word is overused and can mean just about everything and anything to everybody, but I like to understand the world. Yes, I want to change the world, but I think my role in it is to try to base analysis on facts, seek those facts, um, and, and that's, that's where my starting point is. Uh, so, of course, um, 
you know, I, I believe that facts are on the side of the anti-imperialist cause. But that's often quite debatable just what that is, and nothing's more clear how that can break out and people can have very different opinions who all uh, claim or in, you know, are anti-imperialist, and that's the, the war in, in Ukraine, the invasion of Ukraine. Uh, so, so my starting point is not a, a, an ideological objective assumption, of course, no one's immune from such things, but I, I try to mitigate it and leave my mind open and, and, and seek facts because, uh, you know, I'm primarily a journalist, uh, although I don't hide my opinions. Uh, and, and I think my role, and, and I'm not saying this should be everybody's role, you know, there is a role for propaganda. <clears throat> Excuse sure. me. <clears throat> Uh, there is a role for propaganda, and if you're in the trenches and you're fighting, uh, then one of the tools of fighting uh, is propaganda. Now, I think the best propaganda is based on facts and isn't bullshit, but, you know, when you're in the trenches, uh, it's not the same role as, as a journalist. But I think people need journalists that, that seek facts as, as open-mindedly as possible, and so that's what I think my role is. How I got into it is a long story. I stumbled into it. Uh, I guess people that follow what I do know, I, you know, I didn't really even finish high school, and I, I, um, I worked for five years on the railroad, and I worked for three years in the post office, you know, driving a truck. I was a carman mechanic on the railroad. And I got into filmmaking, and I, I guess it was filmmaking that brought me to what I'm doing now because I was able to use filmmaking as a way to explore the world. Anything from, you know, anthropology. I made a film called The Birth of Language. Language was the result of a long and complicated evolutionary process, a process that gave rise to a qualitatively new being, the human. made a film called Return to Kandahar, which I, I got to go to Afghanistan and get a, you know, a handle on, somewhat a handle on what was going on there. I witnessed the fanaticism of the Mujahideen leadership. began to question why the Americans were supporting such extreme forces. I came to realize that the West, which we thought wanted our freedom, was only interested in a victory in the Cold War. And then, the world abandoned Afghanistan. After the Russians withdrew, for five years, the country was plunged into a brutal civil war. And, uh, and then I was executive producer of the main debate show on CBC television in Canada for 10 years, where we were the debate show for the country. And uh, that got me more, you know, towards a journalism uh, approach. All right, well, I have one more question about you and your, you know, it's specifically about you. Um, feel free to give a rather short answer because it was partially covered by the last one. Um, but what uh, what challenges have you faced that you think are specific to your field of journalism and what you do? 
um, that you may not have otherwise faced when you were, say, you know, pre-debate show when you were making films and this type of thing, like institutional pushback, these sort of things? Well, when I was doing the debate show and when I was more of a filmmaker uh, than for quite a few years, I kind of wasn't an active documentary filmmaker, although I'm going back to it again now and we're working on a documentary series with Daniel Ellsberg based on his book, Dooms Doomsday Machine. But, but the institutional pushback, strangely enough, was not all that much. Um, I, it was a strange moment in Canada in two ways. In terms of filmmaking, when I was really actively making films, you know, in the late 80s, 90s, um, and I should end into the early 2000s. Um, there was actually a lot of money to make films. The, the Canadian government was subsidizing and trying to get the film industry going. And, uh, and I was able to get into a position of being, you know, a fairly successful filmmaker uh, and, and able to raise money. And, and so, the, so for a while there, it was not so much institutional uh, pushback. Now, I was making films that were not directly so political. I made a film called Hitman Heart Wrestling with Shadows about Bret Hart and the World Wrestling Federation, which is what it was called then. which was about values and, and, and was political, but only in, in, in the course of the storytelling. Um, and I made a film called Lost in Las Vegas, which is about two guys that play the Blues Brothers uh, that go from Toronto to Vegas looking for a job. It was really about, you know, hyper-capitalism, and, and, but I didn't say so. blues song says there's a town that has it all though it ain't very fair the price of your dreams may be more than a heart can bear got your six string Gibson got your great big house try to sing like muddy water play like lightning sound so my filmmaking was kind of positioned in a way that it was more storytelling and the political content fell out of that story, which I actually think if you're making, for most films, that really is the best way to do it if you want to engage a large audience. Uh, the, the, I, I started getting some pushback from uh, some of the broadcasters that I would sell to because my stuff was all main, went on mainstream TV, you know, anything from A&E to CBC to BBC and so on. Uh, but... As, uh, as we headed into the, I guess, the 2000s, um, and then the, the commissioning editors were more and more super ratings driven, more and more uh, wanting to go careen towards more uh, reality TV. So I, got, I did get fed up with some of the commissioning editors and the difficulty it was to, to sell films that have more substance to them. 
to some extent, they may have changed now. Uh, this, this, because of all the streaming services, um, there's there's quite a uh, interesting variety of films on the streaming services uh, and some of the cable channels now. Uh, more than when I, to some extent, more than when I was more active. Um, uh, you know, I'm not saying that the analysis is uh, so. You know, what's the word? With the depth, I would like. To see, but but pretty good in some cases, uh, and uh, so it's. A, I think the main thing I learned is that the institutions are not monolithic, and you get some good people that make decisions, and if you can find some good people that are progressive, and, and uh, then it's not impossible to get some good documentaries and, and dramas on TV. Now, the main institutional pushback right now we're feeling, and that's fairly serious is from the uh, te big tech for us specifically YouTube and to some extent Facebook. Uh, YouTube, uh, which for the analysis is you know our, one of our main points of distribution, uh, came pretty close to trying to shut us down. The, the reports I did on January 6th, uh, one of the reports I did on the role of Christian nationalism in the military, um, they took down some of those stories, they threatened to close down the channel. And it was only because Matt Taibbi, the journalist, uh, was writing a piece exposing this, and, and he contacted YouTube, and then they backed off. Um, but, but we're pretty sure what they're doing is something people call, I think, shadow banning, where they just don't promote us. And our, our YouTube channel used to do tens of thousands of views, and now it's un you know we're lucky to do 10,000 views and often less. Um, and so I'm quite sure there's an algorithm in place to suppress our views. Uh, I did a piece, I did a report on 9-11 the other day, and now somebody tried to share it on Facebook and got a message saying, this is not allowed to be shared because some people find this reporting abusive. And, and this was a report on Senator Bob Graham, the uh, head of the Congressional Joint investigation into 9-11. I mean, very mainstream sources, except these are sources that believe Bush Cheney uh, deliberately facilitated, knew and facilitated the attacks. But uh, all, the, all the sources I'm quoting are serious mainstream sources. Same thing with my January 6th, uh, we're all mainstream sources. Anyway, so, so the, the, I would say that in terms of institutional uh, suppression, uh, one, it's the big tech. And two, um, I, and but also many other, I would say, you know, progressive journalists uh, who don't go along with the official narrative, I never get invited onto mainstream television or, or, or radio, uh, ever. Uh, and, you know, and I'm somebody with a mainstream track record. You know, I came, I came out of executive producing a mainstream TV show for 10 years. Uh, but it's and my films have all been, as I said, on mainstream television. So I got a mainstream history, and I don't get invited onto anything uh, because they don't want the content. But the same thing happens with other people. Gore Vidal, who was a massive celebrity and and you know extremely well known pundit, that in the late '60s was on TV all the time. But when I got to know him in the uh, early 2000s. Uh, he, he barely ever got invited on television because they just didn't like what he had to say. Yeah. Yeah, I, I noticed a lot of that. And it's not just you. You see people like Chris Hedges, who were also previously, you know, working at the New York Times and now 
just nowhere to be seen on mainstream media. Same with, you know, Matt Taibbi after the whole Russiagate situation. And he kind of called it like it was. And they just stopped, you know, stopped letting him on. Glenn Greenwald, yeah, right. all of them, really. Yeah. Um, well, you know, I think a good segue here, because I had a question specifically about your piece that you recently did on 9-11 with um, Law and Disorder Radio. Um, you mentioned that wars have a tendency to be started with conspiracies in that interview. Uh, and I was wondering what conspiracies, if any, do you think are at play fueling the war in Ukraine? Well, I'm glad you asked me that, actually. I didn't know you were going to ask me that uh, because I wanted to talk talk about this because I've, I've had a bunch of email since I did that report on 9-11 saying, you know, the, some of them quoting Chomsky, who who's, was critiquing this idea of conspiracy, um, and particularly with 9-11 and some others. And, 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 I, and I, you know, I haven't actually read the whole piece of Chomsky on this, but I'm guessing what he had to say, and, and if it isn't, then I don't agree with him, but conspiracy is not the driving force of history. If you focus on the conspiracy and leave it there, you don't understand why things happen, and you don't understand what solutions look like. That said, there has never been a war without secrecy. There has never been a coup without a secrecy and conspiracy. It's, an, it's unimaginable. Oh, okay, we're going to wage war on you, and here's all our plans. It's ridiculous. Oh, we're going to stage a coup in uh, Venezuela, say the, and we're going to tell everyone what we're doing before we do it. I mean, it's a ridiculous idea that there's such a thing as no conspiracy. And when it comes to 9-11, do we think 17 or 18 hijackers got on the planes and that's not a conspiracy? I mean, it's ridiculous. Obviously, the hijacking of the planes, flying them into buildings, was a conspiracy. The only question is, who was in on it? Not, was it a conspiracy? Was it the, the, the lead-up to the war in Iraq and all the lies about weapons of mass destruction, that wasn't a conspiracy? The, the, you know, Cheney, Bush, and all their, their uh, bureaucrats, including people like John Bolton, deliberately fabricated evidence about weapons of mass destruction, deliberately suppressed people that came forward and said, wait a second, there's no evidence there are any, including uh, Joe Wilson, the ambassador who was sent to go find yellow cake uh, in uh, Africa and came back and said, hold on, uh, Saddam Hussein didn't buy any yellow cake. There was no yellow cake. The whole story's made up. And not only did they try to go after him and suppress him, they, they essentially outed his CIA wife, Valerie Plain. I mean, it's all at the level of conspiracy. Now, what's important to understand about conspiracy, because obviously there is, uh, is that that's the motivating underlying reasons for the Iraq war or for uh, other wars. It's not because some people just said, oh, shit, let's have a war. And let's have, you know, let's conspire to have it. You know, obviously, when it come, came to Iraq, uh, first and foremost, and this is, again, in the realm of conspiracy, uh, it was the oil. <coughs> I mean, you know, Dick Cheney's Halliburton made, what was it? I can't remember how many billions of dollars. A lot. Nine, I think it was $9 billion un, no-bid contract. 
you know, leading up to the war in Iraq to, in, to, to make plans for taking over the Iraqi oil industry. Um, and geopolitically, there was this vision, which people can read. Uh, this is the, the thing about a lot of these con conspiracies. They actually, some of the documents are quite public. Uh, the uh, Project for New American Century, which, which is all about, first and foremost, reasserting American military might in what was then considered a one superpower world, to a massive increase in expenditure on, uh, in the military. And then it says quite clearly the Americans will never accept another war, and they won't accept a massive build-out of the armed forces uh, military budget without a new and this is a direct quote, a new Pearl Harbor. Well, that was in print. I mean, that wasn't secret. Uh, but, the, but, but these guys that all were in on writing that document all wound up getting positions in Bush's presidency all around Rumsfeld. And uh, they didn't plan that. Uh, they, and, when, and did they publicly declare, oh, we're going we're gonna to start a war in Iraq because we want to grab the oil, make lots of money, and geopolitically, it's, a, it's, it's the first step in regime change. We go from Iraq to Syria to Iran, and the big objective is regime change in Iran. Anyway, all, of course, underlying economic motives uh, in terms of profit-making for the uh, military-industrial complex, but in terms of the consciousness of the, pe of the people that play this out, of course uh, they conspire. So with the 9-11 thing, you know, when you've got a, a Bob Graham, a senator... Uh, in, uh, uh, an, an insider in terms of the American intelligence community saying that he thinks uh, that Bush Cheney knew the attacks were coming and facilitated them, and people can listen to my interview uh, for the detail of it. Now, I don't know, me, Paul Jay, I don't know that Bush Cheney facilitated the attacks for 9-11. I wasn't in the room with them. You know, I can't verify it. But the fact that Bob Graham says it is news because of who he is. He's not some guy that's just sitting in front of a computer blabbing. You know, this is a, a serious player in the intelligence community. And I couldn't get anybody in mainstream media to pay attention. Now, as far as Ukraine goes, well, to some extent, a lot of what NATO and the U.S. did was in the open. So I don't know exactly what the conspiracy was there because they armed Ukraine uh, pretty openly in, you know, in the months leading up to the Russian invasion. Uh, they're even saying openly now that they want to use the Ukraine war to weaken Putin. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I'm not exactly sure what that has to do with defending democracy, but <laughs> it rarely has anything to do with that. <laughs> well, rarely. Now, on Putin's side, there's a lot of lying. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, as as I said, the, every American war was based on lies, and, and so is this Russian invasion of Ukraine. Mm -hmm. I don't believe there was an imminent attack ready on Donbass. Now they're claiming the attack, I think, in some recent Russian statements, they were expecting an attack on Crimea. Mm -hmm. I, I don't see the evidence for it, maybe, uh, but there's lots of steps to defend Crimea, assuming one even accepts that Russia should even have Crimea, but, you know, I, 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 you know, Crimea is a little bit fuzzy for me because it's got a weird history, which people watching this probably know. Yeah. But, uh, but 
there was not such an imminent attack that it required this kind of response. And I'm not sure there was yeah. any evidence of any imminent attack on Crimea or Donbass. And I, I keep saying over and over again that I don't know how much violence uh, there was from the Ukrainian army towards Donbass in the lead up to the February 2022. But I do know that everybody, including the Russians and everyone who's defending the Russians, uses this number of 14,000 people killed. And they claim, when they use this number, these were killed by the Ukrainian government. Well, I, I only know of one place that 14,000 number comes from. And that is uh, the UN release of the report by the OSCE, I guess it is. And, uh, and that's where the 14,000 number comes from. And in that report, it's 3,400 civilians uh, not 14,000, mostly, almost, almost entirely between the years 2014 and 2016, when there really was a war going on between the Ukrainian government and forces within Donbass. Um, but of that 14,000, there were actually more Ukrainian soldiers killed. I, I, I'm doing this by memory. I think it was more than 4,000. So actually more Ukrainian soldiers were killed than civilians in Donbass. And then there's another category of deaths, which I believe is called armed groups. And I'm guessing this is the uh, Nazi militias, but I'm not sure of that. And that number is even a little around or the same number as Ukrainian soldiers killed. Anyway, the point is, is that there were not 14,000 civilians killed, according to that report. Now, the same report, the same source of the number 14,000, they say from 2018 to 2021, the total number of civilian deaths in Donbass was 310. Now, that's got to be less than people killed by car accidents. So this is not an imminent genocide. Now, yes, uh, do I think that the Ukrainian government should ever have used force to suppress what seems to be a legitimate uh, aspiration of the people in certain, in much of Donbass, maybe not all. No, I don't. I don't think the Ukrainian army ever should have. Um, I don't think the Ukrainian army should ever allowed Nazi militias to operate at all. They should suppress them. They should arrest them. They should throw them all in jail. That is still not a reason to invade and kill thousands of people. There's no basis for uh, a Russian invasion. So, you know, is it a conspiracy? Yeah, well, in the sense that it's, yeah, there was so much lying going on on the Russian side. Um, and I, including up to the point where they had, what, 120, 130,000 troops, and, and Putin was still saying they weren't going to invade. Uh, so, but of course, you know, wars are always conducted in secrecy. Mm -hmm.